0: Morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host, my name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on October 20th, 2020. Today I am joined once again by Canadian political activist George Roche of The Line Canada to discuss the current state of organized resistance against unconstitutional lockdowns imposed on many citizens in Canada and across the world. Though these measures are ostensibly to combat the spread of COVID-19, a disease which the CDC has determined has an infection fatality rate of just 0.14%, the rise of near-dictatorial powers imposing radical lifestyle changes detrimental to the natural functioning human economy has many worried about what this new normal will look like. George and his organization are literally drawing a line between the individual's right to choose and the state's seemingly endless quest for control. Find out more about The Line Canada and the weekly rallies held in Toronto in order to raise awareness at www.thelineinternational.com, on Twitter at The Line Media, and on Facebook at The Line Canada. Our conversation today also includes Dr. Joseph Hickey a physicist, co-founder, and executive director of the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, an organization of academics dedicated to combating the growing menace of a cancel culture threatening to severely limit the ability of many academics and others to feel free to express opinions outside the approved government corporate narrative. Many now live in fear of public humiliation or even job loss and blacklisting should they publicly advocate the benefits of living in a society based on the concepts of healthcare freedom, freedom of speech, and other tenets of a free society. Discover more about the OCLA at OnCivLib on Twitter, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association on Facebook, or at www.ocla.ca on the web. Stay tuned for this discussion, which not only includes a psychological analysis about how we got here, but dives deep into the challenges faced by those who attempt to speak out against it. We will cover the reasons why so many go along with the perceived threat and the draconian measures imposed, despite evidence showing the virus is not as dangerous as the economic impacts of lockdown. We'll also offer solutions to the current emotionally toxic environment that pervades political discourse today. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. In these days of independent media censorship, we rely on listeners like you to distribute this information. You can find out more about this program at The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook and YouTube, at D. McKenty on Twitter, or at www.theshiftnow.com on the web. I'd like to thank George and Joseph for agreeing to appear in this episode and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Thanks for listening to this exclusive Shift episode. I've got uh, George Roche from The Line Canada and Joseph Hinckley from the Ontario Civil Liberties Association joining me today. They just had a great. Uh, anti-lockdown rally up in Toronto, Canada this weekend. These guys are trying to organize as best that they can against the COVID lockdowns that we're dealing with all over the world, actually right now. And so I just wanted to have them on to uh, get an update as to how it's going organizationally, and then really have a conversation about, uh, a broader conversation about political strategies Uh, how to educate the public about what's going on and how to get people involved in organizing against uh, what we're having to deal with here in terms of these lockdowns. So thanks, gentlemen, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And why don't you tell us uh, how the rally went and just give us a little bit of your background and uh, tell us about your organization. George, do you want to go first?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I'm the executive director of The Line Canada and The Line International. And we've been very active in uh, doing the demonstrations at Dundas Square now for the past 27 weeks, which has grown tremendously and has caused us to reach out other, to other like-minded groups, such as uh, OCLA, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, with whom uh, Joseph is the president of. And uh, we, I have did a lot of research uh, on, on OCLA. not Not that I had to, you know, in previous times. No disrespect, Joseph. I think Oakland serves an amazingly important purpose. It's urgent. It's serious. It has absolutely everything to do with what's going on today. Now more than ever, in my opinion. So the lines, part of the lines mandate is to connect with these resources and you know play the relay game. Get that information out there. Post the evidence of our claims. The credibility of many organizations right now who are supporting civil rights are being slammed mercilessly, all over social media, all over, the, all over mainstream media, <clears throat> we're being minimized in our efforts naturally because we're presenting a very strong argument against the uh, tyranny and the oppression that we're experiencing from our local governments.
0: And then Joseph, you want to talk about a little bit about what the uh, Ontario Civil Liberties Union- Association is doing?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, the executive director of the Ontario Civil Liberties Association um we're uh, mostly based in Ottawa, Ontario, and um we have been operating since uh, January two thousand and thirteen so for a few years now and uh what um was the impetus for our founding and and starting our work was uh really noticing um an erosion of freedom of speech and the other fundamental rights um in Canada and specifically seeing university professors fired for criticizing uh, the administration of their institution, um, government employees, um, fired for blowing the whistle on something of obvious public uh, importance and interest, um, laws not being followed and uh, legislation not being um, uh, constructed in, in the proper uh, way and so on, and uh, many other cases of whistleblowers uh, being repressed. And so we um, were, disappointed to see that the, what you could call the Establishment Civil Liberties Associations that were formed in the 1960s in Canada, and that were uh, very radical at the outset back in those days, um, had really become absorbed into the establishment. And so that, you know, um, attorneys general in the government would be
3: uh,
2: coming from the establishment civil liberties associations and Mm -hmm. either going into the these associations or coming from them and so there's they're basically now integrated uh woven into the uh, mainstream establishment and so so we really felt that it was time for something new Um, there needed to be an organization that was going to be completely nonpartisan, was going to truly defend the principles of, um, in particular, freedom of speech and uh, and the other civil liberties, freedom of association, um, freedom of movement, and so on. And um, so we uh, make it a point of policy to um, defend the individuals who are under attack for something that they've said that where no one else will defend them. And so we say everybody has freedom of speech, even on the most controversial, the most taboo subjects. And we, unlike many other uh, organizations, never take a position in favor of or against the content of the speech. We don't mm-hmm. make, we don't take any position. We just say, you know, the person has freedom of speech and that's that. And, and so you can't start um, persecuting people, punishing people, um in ways that go beyond uh reasonable sections of the criminal code. So things like there are there are so here here's here's another aspect of of our, our philosophy is that um a spoken act can have multiple components to it. And one of those components can be committing a crime, like um uttering a death threat or inciting physical violence. And those things exist in, in the criminal code in Canada. But there are other uh laws that try to um criminalize the thoughts the expression the emotions of of people and so we we separate those two things and we uh in, a, in an absolute sense we defend the, the expression side of um uh of, of people's uh, interventions and so that that is like kind of our, our our fundamental starting point and that leads us to defend uh all civil liberties, we think that you need to authentically be able to express all viewpoints to have a democracy. And nowadays, we're seeing that uh, it's gone much, much further than just freedom of speech. I mean, in Canada, we had borders closed between provinces. We had uh, Uh people locked into their houses. Um, Medical doctors who are under attack for having uh, opposing views and having complaints brought to their Professional colleges and other doctors trying to get them um, decertified and or punished or disciplined, and um, it, the list goes on and on. And so we have in the in the COVID um, time of this year, we have uh, done taken more of an intellectual or academic approach to things, and we have um, a senior researcher, Dr. Rampur, who is uh, has done a lot of work and has looked at we uh, really gone over and reviewed the science on face masks, for example. And that was the basis of our letter to the World Health Organization where we, re, where we reviewed um, how uh, many randomized control trials have been done over many years on the question of whether there is a positive benefit of using a face mask in the case of a viral respiratory disease. And there is no uh, reliable scientific basis for um, these policies. And so we um, uh, used that analysis and that letter to the, we went to the very top when uh, the World Health Organization made its flip in June 2020. And then we used that as a basis to appeal to many municipalities in Ontario that then started imposing local bylaws uh, forcing masks on people based on the World Health Organization's decision. mm mm-hmm. And we, uh, we also put out a statement where we recommended peaceful civil disobedience against these policies and we provided some guidelines for how to go about doing that. Um, So those are some examples of the kinds of things we do. Uh, We are um, a small group of volunteers, but we try to provide some analysis and guidance in a principled way. That can help uh, people in Ontario organize and uh, push back against these incredible things that the government is doing.
0: Right. Are you mostly lawyers? Uh, are you providing legal assistance?
2: No, we're mostly academics. Okay. So I myself am a physicist by training. And um, so it's, in this case, we've been able to do some, use our scientific uh, expertise uh, to do analysis of, of some of the scientific claims uh, regarding COVID.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, overall, we're generally on the, more on the academic side. Uh, lawyers typically uh, don't like us because we defend cases that are very controversial. And um, generally, they know that it's not going to be good for their careers to uh, associate with us. So it would have to be a very principled and very radical lawyer Uh, to get involved in
0: one of our cases. Sure. It is amazing uh, how much this, and now they're calling it the cancel culture, is affecting uh, the world of academia where um, so many people are afraid of being able to speak their mind in public about so many things (laughs) (laughs) um, because they're afraid of being publicly censored or um, even losing their jobs over what's going on. I did an interview uh, with uh, Mark Jeftovic. Uh, who wrote a book on cancel culture and just describing ways uh, to try to get around it um, and that more and more people are having conversations behind closed doors, you know, private messaging, uh, things that they may have in the past posted on Facebook or posted on Twitter, uh, but knowing if their real political beliefs get out there, um, then their jobs are at stake and certainly their reputation. So, you know, thank you for doing that work. And I hope that we can uh, start to create a more of an atmosphere, especially uh, within the halls of academia to be able to have the kinds of conversations that need to have in order for a democratic society to move forward. I mean, people need to be free to feel like they can express themselves, you know, (laughs) and we can talk about a variety of topics. Um, it's a serious deal. So I wanna get back into that, but first let's discuss the rally that um, you all put together. So the, the OCLA is uh, endorsing now um, the Line Canada, and the two of you are working together, and um, you put this rally together in, in Toronto last weekend. Um, George, do you wanna to speak to how that went, and um, maybe, maybe even some of the challenges and pitfalls to trying to organize something publicly like this in the current uh, state of affairs? I
1: got to tell you, to the latter, it's getting easier. Great. Not more difficult.
3: Yeah.
0: Naturally,
1: when you have the momentum and you have support, growing support, uh, it's gotten easier. I don't really have anything controversial to report, except I do uh, feel I will elaborate on what Joseph mentioned. And first of all, the OCLA have endorsed the line, which we are certainly. Happy about because I know the work of the OCLA. Due again to my recent research, and it it really is hand in glove. They're they're an academic arm in this uh, in this area, and we've got boots on the ground to bring those messages forward. We're going to be mm-hmm. tightening up our game board as time goes by. But with respect to the rally itself, it went tremendously well. Um, when you talk peaceful rallies, I I think so far what we've done is the epitome of that. Nobody can say anything regarding a violent approach or a disrespectful approach. We've acknowledged everybody as the rights acknowledge everybody, the human rights that is. So I'm thrilled at the way it went. We had some excellent speakers, as you alluded to. We had some spontaneous people show up. The officer from Leval uh, 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 was nothing short of inspirational. Right. He, I guess you could say, put all the police in the country on notice with his remarks regarding his reattachment of his own mind to freedom and free will Mm -hmm. to set aside these absolutely unrealistic, abusive expectations. A mention that Joseph made to as well was the restriction on free speech. So the line is not adhering to any of those policies. In fact, when I read OCLA's Civil disobedient uh, list on the notice. I looked at it, and a check mark is beside every single one of those attributes. So we're on the right track. And that's why I reached out to Joseph, because mm-hmm. again, you look at the clout of academia that he's got over there. And when we start to take an umbilical cord and attach our mission to that, we have a plethora of information that the general public are certainly being more open to hearing about, in dire need of, and are, are now acting on. Where It's kind of like these phases took place where people kind of had to get it a little bit and then really focus on what the messages were and then begin to design a behavioral response to that. Well, so far what we've seen is growing crowds from 1,500 to 7,000. 7, Great. And now we're collecting people off sidewalks. So I, I, I mean, evidently people are starting to listen. That's that's the point.
2: And I just want to I want to say a huge congratulations and kudos uh, to Georgia the line for organizing these events. Um, it's really amazing. It's it's so exciting to see uh, all these people uh, coming out and being obviously having a good time. Um, obviously uh, feeling that it's an important important participation and very enthusiastic. And it's 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 just such a thrilling uh, thing to uh, thing to see. Um, I mean, I I wish that we uh, were able to be even more involved, you know. So at this point, we're supporting, and we're uh, as much as we can. And um, but it's it's really uh, very exciting uh, to see this happen. Well,
1: Great. that's a, that's an interesting thing, you know. Uh, the one thing that we've noticed is, and Joseph said it, people are having a good time. We don't have a bunch of anxiety-ridden egos running around the streets fearing what they're doing, fearing what they're believing or saying as contrary uh, in the groups of people who are attacking us, whether that's online or in the media or what have you. There seems to be this very narrow thinking of, if you are doing this work, you are selfish. (laughs) Right you're a jerk. Uh, It's just a mask, don't be a jerk. It's just a vaccine, don't be a jerk. It's just contract tracing, don't be a jerk. We start to adopt these beliefs and obey them. The smiles on the faces of our attendees are going to be evaporated. So the pushback is extremely important. Grassroots initiatives are vital to this kind of stuff. And we've been really concerned we've had a lot of politicians trying to enter the stage we're we're doing our best to keep away from tying ourselves to a party or to a political message we want to remain relevant to the people because they are the ones who are being affected many of the politicians are still getting paychecks and they still have a job and they're still spouting false data pervasively despite enormous amounts of evidence to the contrary mm-hmm. they are sticking to this agenda so now we've got people who are unfolding uh through all of this and i think this is you know these messages start to get other links attached one would be people are now trying to find out what the imf gave to our mps to lie to us where's the money so people are wanting to follow the money what was Gates doing here back in April talking to 400 Ontario mayors? No media, no minutes, no follow-up. Why are we not seeing this information? Sure, Why sure. does every Canadian taxpayer not see the reasons for Gates' intervention? Only Bonnie, uh, Bonnie Crombie tweeted out from Mississauga indicating, quote, that Bill Gates is here to see us through
3: COVID. That's a very, very concerning statement to me. Yeah, it's pretty amazing and we're seeing um
0: organizations uh, going straight to city governments here in the United States too. These public private partnerships that we're seeing often just target city governments and then circumvent any kind of national debate or even a debate on the state level and then they're working with the city governments kind of behind closed doors. We don't really even know what's going on and they're making these long-term plans. It's it's uh, I think it's a tactic frankly, especially
1: by- especially if they're de- democrat run uh
3: cities. Mhm.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how easy it is for these people to, these organizations, these large organizations, Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a lot of these foundations working behind the scenes to go straight to city governments. And um, a lot of times the, the, you know, the citizens of the city don't even have any idea what's going on until uh, these things have already these plans have already been made, and the money's already changed hands. You know, like you said, follow the money. <laughs> I mean, there's so much money flying around uh, right now, and uh, we can see the agenda that it's promoting. And uh, it's one of the things that makes it so challenging to organize against it because uh, we're up against r- really, really big money players. <laughs> um, but let's let's the ol- th- yeah, the oligarchs, right.
1: sure, <laughs> the right, the are. Are out there in full swing with their with their cash, you know. It, it's interesting to me. We're not seeing as much activity in this country from anti for Black Lives Matters uh-huh. because it doesn't seem that Soros is banking on a lot of people taking him up on the job. But what we are seeing is minor resistance groups showing up. We had two actually at Dundas Square the other day who were were anti protest uh, groups. Hmm. Uh, didn't make any difference. Uh, Clearly, we're leading the way with the message uh, uh, that is largely revolving around the exposure of the government's uh, misleading of its people in several ways. And I believe all of that is starting to crack.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's hard to believe. I mean, with the amount of information that's out there right now. You've got to think more and more people are starting to question the official narrative because, uh, you know, the numbers just don't back and they never have backed the initial fear mongering that we got. But let's uh, let's stick to the idea of the of of human rights right now, because I think that this has gone. I mean, people just don't even understand what you're talking about anymore when you're talking about the importance of free speech. So, George, will you talk about the symbolism behind the line? You've got your. um, Your logo with the circle and the line through it, just in terms of like letting the audience know how to make a boundary. I mean, it seems really important to me because so many people uh, in my mind are allowing themselves to get pushed around right now. And, um, you know, people need to kind of wake up to the fact that they need to be responsible for themselves and know how to make really solid boundaries against when people are doing this, this kind of behavior against them it's
1: it's It's quite indignant
0: when you have organizations
1: who've been around for as long as Ontario Civil Liberties Association has being ignored and diluted in the mix. Mm-hmm. So our logo directly confronts that sort of oppression with the O, and the the red paint slash is the blood of the people who died to uh, extricate us from such oppression hence the French Revolution. I mean, what was that about? Millions of people fought and died to make the world safer democracy, and yet we have these power control freaks running around right now, partnering up with elitists who are buying their way into our governments who are willing to obey their agendas. And the suffering is then downloaded onto the people, its taxpayers, its audiences, its children, its institutions and industries are all suffering at the same rate of speed, some more than others, depending on your income or economic levels, but the reality is everybody is experiencing some impact to a greater or lesser degree, uh, which has arisen out of the relationships, obviously, that have been formulated to control our governments, not to allow them to lead, but Mm -hmm. to teach them to dictate. And that requires the squashing of, of liberties. Go ahead, Joseph.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's something that comes to mind as, uh, as you're talking and uh, in the last uh, segment as well there. But, uh, I mean, the protests that George and the line are organizing um, are different from just any old protest, you know, <laughs> because nowadays it's, it's actually an act of resistance or activism just to go to a protest um especially when it's against the laws that are trying to keep us all apart and isolated in the uh, lock at home essentially mm-hmm. um so it's very powerful to uh have that uh, event that's happening especially if it's regular and people get to know that um that it's happening that it's growing and that you know well as an individual i can think well maybe i'll uh try to get my courage up and go and join it next time. And that actually becomes the individual uh, act of uh, having dignity and um, making a decision for yourself about um, how society should be organized. And it gives, it gives an opportunity to participate in society in, 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 in this, you know, what they call the conversation or the basically the decision-making process. You know, if, if we're going to have, um, a law that prevents people from organizing, gathering, um, then a protest becomes the point of contact between the individual and the state. <laughs> you know, it's sure. Well, right.
1: That's a great point because they can't censor you;
3: they can't shadow ban you. Mm-hmm. Everyone's public.
2: But it's what's I think what's essential is that um, individual action. You know, and we talk about building community. We talk about um, organizing. But what really matters is that individuals are willing to take risk and stand up for themselves, and have courage and confidence and dignity. And then you, when you decide to do that, then you um, you reflect on it, you communicate it, you share it with your network, and that way you're informing one another and you're building an organization. But that is secondary to the, uh, the individual's choice to take an action. Right. Um, Very true. Yeah.
0: One of the things that kind of, uh, as I was uh, preparing for this, I read the letter that you sent to the World Health Organization, and one of the things on the list, reasons why you should wear a mask, was actually, you know, because of the social stigma against not wearing a mask. Like, you'll be fitting in, and that'll be good for you. And it just really, it like flew out on the page, like, well, what? <laughs> You know, they're, it's like they're imposing this, this one-sided view of how dangerous COVID is and how great the masks are. And then they're saying, well, since we've convinced most people of this, then it behooves you to wear a mask because then you'll fit in. I mean, this is actually, you know, they're not saying to people, you should think for yourself and make your own decision, you know, they're saying to people, gosh, you you should succumb to the peer pressure here. Most people think like we do. So just do it and you'll feel better. I mean, it was just a yeah, wild, offering- wild thing to say, right? From from a professional scientific organization, right?
2: It's incredible. We're offering you a means, a way to conform.
0: Yeah. You
2: know, yeah, here's uh, a symbol you can use to conform. And right. So this is we're offering it to you for yeah. free.
0: Yeah, and just do it. And if you conform, it'll make it feel. It'll make you feel better. I mean, I just thought, what a crazy argument. Like, even if I was trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, I wouldn't just say it like that. I'd come up with something better, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was just yeah, it was just one of the one of the many mind boggling aspects of of what we're going through here. I mean, like you're talking about Joseph. I don't. Sometimes I sit around and I wonder how many people are actually you know thinking in in the lines of, of how we're thinking here today and having this conversation um but they're not coming out because they're afraid to talk i mean there's literally a, an oppressive atmosphere where if you speak your mind and say hey I, what are we doing why these lockdowns then uh you're running a really big risk of, of getting publicly shamed i mean you as you talk i mean it goes it it goes through the roof it's a, i call it a sort of a passive-aggressive form of censorship, right? They're not necessarily burning your books in the street or burning you at the stake. But, you know, if you have an idea that does not conform to the official narrative, you know, you're definitely going to have to take a hit and and that's the environment that we live in. And so like what has happened socially that we've gone from a, a, a culture of believing in freedom of speech. And this is the other side that I wanted to talk about with you too is that it's amazing to me how few people seem to even comprehend the importance of something like freedom of speech or freedom of assembly, and they're just willing to say, "Well, the government has told me this, so they must be right." And if you disagree, then you're wrong, and you should you should be censored. I mean, I've lit- I mean, I've had friends. It seems like it's been it's been growing for decades now, from the politically correct movement, you know, to the hate speech idea. And now all the way to this place where basically if you disagree with the authority, uh, then, you know, you must be wrong. You must be hurting people. You must be a psychopath, you know, like you were talking. Well, to.
1: Well, again, you're, you're, you're talking about, uh, look at it as a family systems dynamic where you have a whole bunch of people obeying the parents. But a sibling steps out of line. It's like, Whoa, well, wait a minute. Mommy told you and daddy told you you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Now now that they've elicited the aid of another family unit, which is the siblings. Some people call the sibling rivalry, I call it a meshment. But the but the reality is we have a lot of blind obedience going on, and when the inversion, in my opinion, between uh how government should feel about its people and people toward its government, right now we have a backward scenario where people fear the government and not the other way around, as it should be. So that tells us that people don't have the insight or the knowledge and that they feel by idealizing their government, they have done something virtuous. Their judgment is good, they are moral in doing so, and this is what propels the wherewithal to attack other people who don't want to buy into that narrative, and it's under that basis that their, their virtue is wielded. And while, while it's, it's disagreed with by many growing platforms, scientists, doctors alike, our, you look at our stage, it was, uh, there was a few people, a doctor who gave up her practice to, uh, to uh, join uh, free speech and to uh, speak truth, I believe she said. Mm-hmm. You have a police officer who's done the same. This is not usual courage when you have people um on the other side of the continuum who simply don't know what they're talking about they can't know what they're talking about 6 7000 people sitting in a square in Toronto protesting the lockdown measures and other oppressive ideologies uh, freedom of speech section 2789 and 15 are getting tossed around like they never existed you can't have 7000 wrong people in one location. Actually, what you have is 7,000 people who have done their homework, have unfolded to what's really going on, and have joined the movement based on provable data that they've uncovered. It's mm-hmm. not what we're saying. It's not what we're saying. It's what we're all believing. It's not like we sold them the idea. We did help to de- disseminate information, uh has uh, pushed information out into the public for people to consume. Um, They're tying excellent nouns to verbs, as many other groups are. So I think what we're seeing right now in this oppressive world is the government, while the people are dependent upon the government, the the government is dependent reciprocally on the people, especially the mask wearers, to continue to march with its narrative. And so our mandate, as we see it, is to combat that through our protests, through a constant, relentless stream of information. We are in an information war, after all.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah. people
1: got 20 scientists over here. We got 30,000. Their 20,000 20, are right, and ours are dropped dead wrong. You see, it's all or nothing. Nobody's willing to consider, uh, at least the people who are sleeping, aren't willing to consider the new information available to them that would fundamentally help them to arrive at a better understanding. Mm-hmm. It's become competitive. It's not a mission, it's a competition. If if the mission of the mask wearers and the people who believe in what the government's measures are doing for us, if they were willing to speak up and I mean, come to our rallies. I've offered it many times. You've seen it on my Facebook, Doug, where I've said, come on out to our rallies. I'll happily give you the microphone. You can teach us everything you think we don't know.
3: Mm-hmm. How how nope.
0: many rallies have you done so far, George? And how often are you doing? Are you doing them like once a month? Once a week. Rallies? Really? Once a week? Every, every Saturday?
1: Every, every Saturday.
0: In Toronto? Yep. Yeah, that's great. God, I wish I can't even believe like we're nowhere near that here in the United States. We've got so much to to learn from you guys. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Well, you guys on got
1: this. guns. Let's not forget Yeah, I guess. <laughs> when, when people know that there's lead flying around, I mean, holy crap. I mean, they, they could get killed. I can understand their resistance to the resistance. Yeah.
0: Uh, I don't, <laughs> you, I don't, well, you we're know. A little, we're a little less threatened by the bullet. But, you know, what's funny, as you know, though, like even these militia movements and whatnot we have in the United States, like they end up I mean, we all are ending up getting branded as as these white supremacist Nazi gun toting, you know, machine gun to- gun toting crazies, which is not nearly the majority of us. You know, most of us, I'd love to see a peaceful protest where I'm just trying to get the information out. I'm fighting an information war here, you know. Uh, and so it's it's crazy. that And that's what I see here. You know the mask wearers see a, a militia guy, and they just you know it, they're never going to have their minds changed by that kind of that kind of dialogue, I guess. And you know, and and trying to get the information out to the to the average mask wearer in a way that they can hear it, it it's just so challenging because their their ears are closed to alternative perspectives, and I'm afraid that. You know, as I'm saying, like these gun toting militia guys are really turning them off and they're not and they're not going to hear uh, any message that comes from from that sector of the community. Um, and I don't think it's even we a
1: majority of us. Somebody's bring, if somebody's bringing uh, guns uh, to the fight and, and you know, and, and you're being threatened, it, you're, you're going to give
2: up your rights pretty quick. Yeah. Doug, Doug, you mentioned you asked the question, you know, how did we get here? Right. Freedom of speech. You know, and and I wanted to just uh, add the the point that the topics or subjects of speech that are the most uh, taboo are the ones that are the most geopolitically sensitive. Sure, so it really is operating at a very high level. These um, propaganda campaigns, these different uh, legal campaigns and actions by the state to repress speech that have happened over you know, decades. Um. But you have things like uh criticism of the actions of the state of israel um racism environmentalism including uh, climate change um uh gender orientation feminism uh, these are some of the topics that are among the most uh sensitive and taboo and and there's geopolitical reasons for this mm-hmm. and so um what ends up happening
3: is that as
2: um, laws and policies are imposed and examples are made of uh, controversial speakers that where, where they're successfully uh, persecuted based on their, their speech, the society starts to um, move into a state where it becomes harder to oppose all all laws and all changes. It becomes harder to, um, as an individual, contest a powerful organization or a powerful figure like a politician that wants to uh, implement a new uh, law. And this is actually uh, the subject of my uh, PhD research in physics. Was a, a simple physics model of individuals interacting in a society and forming a social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so what? I just want to mention this uh, because I think it gives some insight into how these how these things change over time is that what I found is that a society has two fundamental features that control um, its structure. So in other words, how um, equal or unequal it is, its distribution of, of status of people in the society. And then also the stability of that structure over time. So wh- whether it's going to, retain its shape its its level of inequality for a long time, or if that's going to deteriorate and run away into something that degrades very rapidly and approaches a totalitarian state and so what what ends up happening is that these the two features that control these these things are the um, the the degree to which an individual can fight back and win sometimes
3: mm-hmm.
2: in their in the interactions where they try to oppose. Um, an imposition of power on their lives and uh, the degree to which you're punished if you lose. So what, what happens is that for small values of these two features, so your your ability to um, fight back and win and the degree to which you're punished, if for small values you end up having a stable society, it might be very unequal but it, 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 pers- it maintains its shape for a long time. But if you increase the value of either of these parameters, in other words you can interpret this as if you make it as a society harder to have freedom of speech, you eventually cross over into a region where the structure rapidly deteriorates and you start to slide away um, and, and you move towards something that is a kind of totalitarianism where very few people in this society have massive status and most Almost everyone else is at, at the end of very low status, and so when you move into that runaway uh, phase of a society, it it becomes very hard to pull out of that because. In, what 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 is required to revert that trend is for individuals to be able to defend themselves and win some uh, interactions against. The, the more powerful people that are that are making the rules, and so but when you get into this runaway slide where the society is degrading, that that happens very rarely. So it's the society is in a sense lost because it's hard for it to pull itself out of this. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: this what's the well,
2: risk of crossing over into that where 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 you know things can slide away from it?
0: Well, well, absolutely. And then what's fascinating to me right now is the number of people that are. I mean, the number of common people who are actually facilitating this drive into totalitarianism by applying this kind of social pressure that the World Health Organization's even mentioned, right? I mean, like, it's just so strange to me that people have lost... It's like they don't understand the importance of the freedoms that have been fought for in the past, and now they're sort of almost... uh, I mean, you know, George and I in our last conversation and in, in the interview I did with him would call it almost a Stockholm syndrome where these people are being abused. Uh, they're not allowed to make choices for themselves. They're not being treated as adults. And yet they're perpetuating the the cycle of violence by actually, and in a sense, I think mostly passive aggressively, um, like imposing on their fellow citizens. If I was to walk, if, I mean, I can't go to a store in my neighborhood here without a mask on, or else people would be jumping all over me, you know? <laughs> I mean, it would take a really... I, I'd have to be able to put forth a lot of effort to to combat it here. I think, for me personally, like going straight to the sheriff or going straight to the local government or, or trying to have more public conversations, actually, is more worth my time than just being a mask rebel because there are just so many, and the social pressure is is so profound. And it's just fascinating to me that we've gotten to a place where as we're clearly sliding towards this totalitarian model that you're discussing it's the citizens themselves that are self-policing this it's mind-boggling to me
1: and the very same citizens are thanking their governments for our government for robbing them right it's it's like they're hailing and idealizing the people their captors as if to say we're okay with giving up a few of our rights to allow for your mandate to have this kind of room and occupy our lives the way that it is. And they're doing this without question. Yeah. This is blind obedience. And when you're, I think I mentioned this before, if you remember Adrian Eiser, who referred to this as the Dominator Society, where a group of people have a, have power over another group of people, usually a minority or people who are weaker, perceived to be weaker than them, and the weaker than them group is basically complementing the efforts of their captors, as if to suggest they are correct, that they are being treated properly, and the government sees things appropriately. And these people are oblivious to what's actually going on behind the scenes. right? Conversations that are occurring with people who are impeding our sovereignty. Again, without question. So so they're not doing the homework. They're attacking people who are knowledgeable. uh, When asked to produce some kind of evidence to their claims, you don't get science. You get smeared. So obviously things are backwards.
2: Yeah, so you get punished if you uh, oppose the, the state narrative, the state propaganda. If you get, you, you you sense, you sense at least, you perceive that you're going to be punished. Mm-hmm. And so then you invest. We in got it. arrested. We got arrested on on
1: uh, Friday. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. For that very you're reason. Not
2: saying that perception is wrong. Right. <laughs> no,
1: it's not. We were. <laughs> we knew we were right. We got arrested.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Go ahead, right. you, well, you, yeah. But you um so you but you invest in it, right? So you, you, you decide, well, I don't want to get punished, so I better um go along with this. Right. But then it's hard to go along with something that is uh gives you cognitive distance, right? That it doesn't make sense. <laughs>
3: right, right. <laughs> it
0: doesn't punished, make sense. We touched on that, haven't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's where I have been going deeply into this idea lately because when I try to explain to people in my community, you know, I mean, I, I, right, I studied philosophy in school, so I thought reason was pretty important to people. And, and I've spent a lot of my life, you know, trying to construct rational arguments thinking, if I can just use reason really well, then, I, you know, I can provide, a, I can have social, there's social change is going to come of it. If I work on being a rational human being, I can go to my fellow man. And I can say, hey, here's a really rational argument. Will you check this out? You know, oh my gosh, Doug, you've thought about this really well. I think you might be right. You know, we'd have a conversation and actually. That's that's a disorder today. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's a disorder. <laughs> the, the older I get, the more I'm like, well, you know, I keep coming to people with rational arguments and I just get like, shut up. Don't talk about that. You know, you're just a crazy person. And it's like, what am I? So I finally, I I got, you know, I studied a little more psychology than philosophy. It was like, oh, this is called cognitive dissonance. I'm starting to understand what's happening. Well, hang on. Yes,
1: it's it's rampant. Right. It's it's cognitive dissonance, but it's also pathologizing. You see, the moment Uh you challenge the logic of some of these people, they begin to tell you that you need help, that you're a POS. (laughs) Right, right. There's all kinds of acronyms you get. Uh, this is pathologizing in other, but it's really a projection because, because, you know, the old saying of it takes one to know one, that's kind of simpleton, but the reality is that is what it is. It's projection. They're experiencing their own pathologies more in the people with whom they are attacking than in themselves, which is a form of blame really. And that is a thought disorder. So we have a lot of people with thinking disorders, which also, uh, explains the fact that we, the government, has made its people dependent upon them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the shut up money, the close your businesses down, wear the masks, do as we say, not as we do, don't ask any questions. We gave you some dough.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the hospitals are getting paid extra money for every COVID case they find. The The states here in the United States get extra money from the federal government. The more cases they find, there's all kinds of reasons to find more COVID cases uh, in terms of, you know, the the financial benefits that you're going to get from it. And of course, this is going to this is going to affect those decision makers at the top. And then it trickles down to everybody at the yeah. bottom where they think, oh, there must be so many COVID cases, you know, <laughs>
1: Well, if you knew that the business of of the PCR business was (laughs) going to launch, you might have you might have thought about where you put your money.
0: Right? We should. We need to find a list of congressmen and senators that invested in PCR tests six months ago. You know. (laughs) (laughs) You know. But uh, Joseph. I I want to get to this idea of science. How many members of the OCLA are scientists and how many are are more uh, liberal arts oriented? Is it mostly scientists or what's the ratio there?
2: Yeah, I would say about half, half. Well, maybe even a little more than half in the the core group of uh, scientists. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, and the reason why I ask is because, you know, I've actually been dealing, I mean, most of these people that I'm dealing with, right, when I encounter this cognitive dissonance and I'll be showing them, Peer-reviewed scientific papers, they don't want to look at it. They're not paying attention, you know. But they say, well, science says that COVID is killing all of us and we need to lock down. And science says this, and I know that, and you're just being irrational if you don't listen to the science. And and so, and and also this other aspect of the argument is there's a consensus of scientists that say this. And if the scientific consensus says it, then it must be rational to follow what the consensus of scientists say. (laughs) And so you know, I, I don't even, I, I mean, I, I can speculate as to where this whole notion of like a consensus in science, because I mean, now I'm doing a lot of interviews with scientists uh, every week that, you know, they don't, they disagree with this quote unquote consensus. And I don't even know where the consensus comes from or what it is, but it, I think that that's sort of, I, I mean, I consider it a mythology that the average person follows. They believe they're following the scientific evidence when they're going along with these government dictates. And it's just, yeah. I mean,
2: you might as well replace it with the uh, religious doc, dogma says, right? right. Science says, um, right. I mean, exactly. science, like, skepticism is supposed to be a virtue. You know, it's supposed to be like great if you can be skeptical and, 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 you know, you try to be objective and you recognize that it's like almost impossible to be objective, but you're always like trying to challenge yourself can I be more objective, you know, can I step yeah. back and reconsider whether I'm actually being objective here or not? Right. So that's, that's, a very, that's,
1: a, that's a very good point because many people now, again, you know, dealing with the backward the backward thinking, the backward wiring, uh, being pessimistic
3: is being realistic about what I, you're seeing. A lot of that going on, that people think the worst
1: uh, you know, the worse they describe the situation, to being the more accurate they are in 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 terms of rights violations. You, you got to remember, nobody's been sitting around talking about this stuff forever. It's been going on uh, for us for the past twenty seven weeks. We have seen a prevalent prevalence um, in the arguments uh, mm-hmm. that we're getting from from people online. At the protest, it is a nice, healthy break from that. People are able to connect with people who truly get what's going on. And what does this do? It highlights the backwardness that we're experiencing right now. And it does it in a very positive way because people aren't attacking anybody. They're simply sharing truthful stories that any public member can go online and corroborate. And the more we do this kind of stuff, the more difficult it's becoming for these people to prevail. We're not seeing as many responses anymore. Not as many. So it, the, the pushbacks are working, but we've got to continue. Cracks are formulating.
2: Right. And, and yeah. You, you I mean, your you comments about signs, Doug, made me uh, just made me remember a conversation I had recently with uh, an activist and supporter of the uh, the Oak Line. We were talking about how you know how can you be. Uh, neutral you have to pick a side in uh, these kind of uh, things that are happening in society and and her comment was you know I can respect someone who is authentically neutral you know Mm -hmm. someone who says yeah I I don't know you know it's not something I've studied I there's some concepts there that aren't clear to me I don't understand them Um, I really don't know uh, you know uh, whether this is a dangerous virus, whether there is a virus, whether it's dangerous, whether it's more dangerous than previous years, um, whether uh, these kind of viral respiratory illnesses are mostly transmitted by uh, small particles, aerosols that float around in the air, or whether it's uh, larger droplets, you know, that are subject to uh, gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, well, <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> all, that fall quickly to the ground. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah but to, to 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 it's i mean it's it's it takes a lot of work it takes a real really open mind to um form one's own uh position and uh and and decide for oneself like you know what is the closest representation of reality based right. on uh the concepts and arguments that are out there and that i can think of myself you know and the evidence that that's available in and, and to, yeah so i mean I, it, it it's um, we 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 it would be good if we had more people who are authentically neutral rather than thinking that they uh, know <laughs> yeah other or
3: no, the uh, know it all fools they no, they, they
1: all
0: fools I think we're actually touching on a really important concept here. And I've had conversations with other independent journalists and interviewers like myself. And and we'll often tell people, like, we'll tell our audience, you know, don't take our word for it. Please do your own research and come to your own conclusions. And it's actually a fundamentally different philosophy than if you're listening to a mainstream article where they're just like telling you, this is how it is. And they never say, maybe it's different. Maybe I don't know. You know, I don't know all the facts, but this is what I'm seeing. This is the narrative, the best narrative I can construct based on the facts at hand, which is, I mean, that's just it. There's this level of humility, I think, that needs to be present in human beings, you know, for, for rational discourse to really move forward. And this really close-mindedness that so many people have where they can't even hear uh, the opposing point of view is it's actually deadly to the concept of democracy or any kind of community. You know, all, all social
1: responsibility. working
3: through a problem.
1: Yeah, right? all social responsibility yeah. is harmful to democracy, in my opinion. When you don't observe boundaries, you're not out to have the best conversation or debate that you possibly. Right. Have. This this is about attacking. And I've always said, whether it's attacking skills are lacking, if you haven't got the skill, you have to resort to attack. You're not going to be entering science into the equation. You don't have any. So you've got to do what you know how to do best, which is either smear, pathologize, or accuse.
3: Yeah.
1: But none of those are valued exchanges. If you want to have a positive debate, again, I've invited people to come on out, get the microphone. It's, you know, we're all for free speech. We're all for what you have to say. All you have to do is be willing to show up. Right. They don't because of what Joseph said. They're not neutral. They're not on our side. They're just simply like loyal parrots spouting a narrative that they have adopted from mainstream media or their friends who have adopted it from mainstream media. But everybody is feeding off the same trough of of BS, if you like. It's it's they're all going to the same trough. So they all have the same narrative. They all have the same belief systems and they call that unity. Mm -hmm. It would glorify dysfunction in my opinion, social
3: dysfunction
1: because it's all these people banding together, co-lacing together out of insecurity, not knowledge. If they were secure, they'd be able to say, I'm willing to hear your side of it. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to be amendable to the new information or reasoned argument. Right. We're not seeing that stance. We are seeing people being attacked. And my page on Facebook is testimony
0: to that fact. Yeah, I know. I've been there. I've seen it.
2: Just just yesterday, we uh, invited the chair of the Board of Health here in Ottawa. So it's the top municipal uh, board that um, governs the public health unit of the city. I invited him to a debate about uh, the necessity and effectiveness of the mandatory mask policy that is implemented in the city here, mm-hmm. and it's just somebody who, uh, you know, says that he has considered many different sources, many different arguments on the topic of mandatory masks, and um, you know has considered um, critical research and uh, still comes to the opinion that uh, they're necessary. But he's he declined. Uh, he's not willing to. Uh, defend his views against an opponent in a, in a debate, where we said that the goal of the debate would be to help the public understand the city's position and, on this policy and its basis. Yeah. You know, so if you're so confident, um, you should be willing to uh, stand up and publicly defend your position and explain
0: Absolutely.
1: it. Absolutely, yeah. if you're not willing to be subject to expert scrutiny, then obviously you can't be that confident about
0: You know, I've seen the same thing with the vaccine uh, controversy where people that are concerned about vaccine safety want to have debates with the people that are all about, you know, following the vaccine schedule and they just refuse to do it. And that should be a red flag, frankly. It's a red flag when you're not willing to publicly state why you think the way that you do and have a debate, a rational, reasonable debate with somebody who has a disagreement with you. I mean, you know, come on. The Um, facts
1: aren't friendly. They're not friendly. Well,
0: it seems like deep down they must, they must know this. Uh, It's funny. And then I've heard, you know, Oh, I don't even want to give their side. uh, You know, I I don't want to give them the respect of having a debate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to dignify them with the debate, but it's really just a cop-out. I mean, they don't, they, they don't have answers to some of our questions and so uh, they're not willing to go, go public knowing, or at least, Subconsciously, being frightened that they're going to embarrass themselves, that they're going to be, you know, really kind of cowardice
3: versus
1: versus real virtue.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, you know,
1: I think I think anybody who's willing to hear both sides uh, of of the equation, uh, anybody willing to do that, is balanced. But the moment you have somebody who doesn't want to know, they only want you to hear their opinions. I mean, I've said many times to people online, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And a debate has to allow for both sides to be heard equally so, but stick to the topic, stick to the subject matter and don't attack people, attack the problem. But they don't really know the problem. So the only thing left to do when you say something that's in conflict with what they believe is to attack you,
3: mm-hmm. to attack
1: credibility or who you are, where you come from, something other than the problem, gets the attention. Not
0: useful, dysfunctional. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy the amount of discipline it takes to stay on topic and, and to stay within a reasonable discussion, and how few people are actually willing to take it to that level, it's uh, uh, it's fascinating. I mean, it's it should be what they teach in school, how to have rational conversations and think critically, but uh, unfortunately it seems like a, almost a lost art. Joseph, will you speak to this concept of uh, the consensus in science? Because so many people think, well, if it's a consensus of science, <laughs> then it must be true, and that's how I think, and I'm being rational if I think this way. And yet, I mean, we've already spoken a little bit; we've touched on this. But I mean, obviously, for any for science to progress, there's got to be a new idea. I mean, it, what is your experience in the scientific community? I, I imagine there's lots of scientists with lots of different ideas. I mean, you're you're each an individual. What is how does this idea even of a consensus you know sit with you
2: (laughs) well yeah no, i mean you could say a consensus is an opportunity or a claimed consensus is an opportunity to make a revolutionary discovery you know like
3: Mm.
2: um physicists typically in you know in the first courses learn about how uh, this is the story they tell i don't even know if this is true but how you know at the turn of the 1900s that um you know, the top physicists claimed that everything was basically solved, and there were a few uh, small problems left. But you know, we understand everything. And this, and, and you know, a few a few years later, Einstein came out with his uh, amazing theory of uh, special relativity, um, which just like completely changed our idea of space and time. Right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And it's this one so- guy. That- no consensus
3: going
2: you know right it's like, yeah he was somebody who uh, was able to tie together a few different concepts that a few other scientists had um, put forward in, in in the years before him and uh, have this like brilliant spark that linked it together mm-hmm. it opened a new door on our our picture our, on our idea of reality um, so and that was in the, a time when the top scientists would have said. You know, his, his supervisor would have told him that uh, what he was doing was pure speculation and, and he can't do that. And everyone knows that, you know, there's a consensus that um, uh, we understand uh, movement uh, in the world, you know, and, and Newtonian mechanics. This is, is, is all we need to know, basically. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, can, I think a consensus is, uh, it, it, it should be looked at as um, with skepticism. Um, it's <laughs> the idea that so many scientists agree on something um, raises a question of like, well, who are the few that don't agree and why don't they agree? You know, you immediately start to look at who are the dissenters.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's say, well,
2: what, what are they? What do they think? And, and so it gives you um, it's interesting because it, it gives you a debate between two two schools of thought. Mm-hmm. Which can always be interesting. You could, yeah, because the way that um, new discoveries are made is often through conflict, I think. You know, it's what they call the, the dialectic and you know, creative destruction or the conflict of two opposing uh, ideas that leads to the creation of something new. So a, a consensus gives you that opportunity. Right.
0: Well and also the the but but the truth or at least progressing towards the truth is what's occurring in the in the conflict between the consensus and then the outsiders like i mean that's just it you have to actually if you believe in this process you have to give as much credit to the outsiders who are thinking against the consensus as you do to the consensus for creating this opportunity for you know the expansion of human knowledge through the scientific process which is that's why I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah,
2: you weight the two claims equally. I mean, one claim has, I don't know, 97% of scientists. So, yeah. they, say, oh, they, so say, they say, okay, so that's one claim. And then on the other side, there's another claim. You weight them equally. <laughs> and right. you try to think about, well, does, does it make sense or not? And why not? And,
0: uh, I mean, it's just interesting because I've been speaking with so many scientists that are in that 3% number that you're talking about. Like I'm talking to people, I mean, right now, for whatever reason, it's become kind of the thing for people. I mean, with COVID coming on, some people are doubting the viral theory altogether. And, uh, you know, throughout the Internet, there's this conversation about whether terrain theory is actually uh, more applicable to uh, how disease happened. And I'm telling you, I'm talking to people that are on the cutting edge of science coming up Judy. with theories that are, yeah, I mean, a Judy Mikovits or, or a Dr. Stephanie Seneff um, or a Dr. Tom Cowan that I, you know I've actually spoken to these people (laughs) and they're blowing my mind with how, I mean, obviously they have an intelligent perspective and they have a new point of view so that people can just blow it off as those people are just crazy people. I mean, it boggles my mind. And when they can't, and when they can't actually, you know, when they're not engaging in that rational conversation about, well, here's what the consensus says, here's the answer to your skepticism. If they're not providing that answer and engaging in this rational conversation, well you know something is up. Like people are just afraid that maybe their belief system's not as accurate as they thought it
3: was, you know.
2: Yeah, sometimes um people will say we need a consensus because we need to take action quickly.
3: Um, because there's a great there's a great threat mm-hmm.
2: to society, right? So we need to act right away. I mean the other side would say, another side would say uh, that uh, a perceived crisis is is not the time for rash action, that you need to consider many different sides of the debate and what's going on and make sure that you don't make a uh, rash mistake, you know, by by taking a dramatic action uh, that might not be necessary. Right. Uh, You might rush the whole herd off a cliff, (laughs) you know, so.
0: Well, and... And let's apply, I don't want to go on too long here, but um, let's just take a few minutes to apply this to your, uh, your letter to the World Health Organization, where you clearly delineate, you know, here's your arguments for the mask wearing, and here's our concerns about the mask wearing. I mean, you talked about um, confirmation bias in the, in the scientific testing, and this is something that I've seen over and over again. We just had this huge hydroxychloroquine debate where, and I've seen, you know, I've just seen this, I've seen it happen in the vaccine debate. I've seen it happen in other things where they'll construct studies that sort of have this built-in confirmation bias. And then they'll go see here, we were right. (laughs) And it's like, well, you didn't actually have a control group or you didn't follow the, in the hydroxychloroquine uh, situation, they didn't follow the, the protocols that were working. They, you know, they would double or triple the dose of hydroxychloroquine and go see, it's dangerous. You, you know, it's like, well, yeah, everybody knew that was dangerous before you started if you were going to give it to them at that level. Um, so, you know, do you want to speak to, for example, maybe like how some of these mass studies have have this built in confirmation by us already? You know, once the mass the lockdowns were imposed, they're sort of constructing these scientific studies to justify what they've done. And they might not actually be, you know, they might not be using the best science.
2: Yeah, the the main thrust, the main argument of our letter to the WHO is the same argument that the WHO always used up until June 2020. It's that um, there is a standard for uh, scientific evidence that can be used to promote public policy. There's a threshold of study. You can't just use any paper that's published in a peer-reviewed journal. It has to be a certain type of study. It's called a randomized controlled trial with uh, laboratory verified infections. And many of those have been done over the past few decades, you know, it's and, and none of them have ever found a statistically significant positive benefit to wearing a mask for these types of uh, illnesses. So, and the WHO knows that, and they've always had that position. The science didn't change, um, you know, uh, around June of 2020, they just changed their position. So that's the main thrust of of our letter: is that we're really trying to argue that you need to have this threshold. It's to prevent certain types of biases that can arise in these studies. That's why the gold standard has has always been uh, randomized controlled trials. And um, there's many of them, and they're just ignoring them now. Yeah. And so, it's, it's important because the media and the politicians will, will try to keep on, heap together all kinds of uh, peer-reviewed articles and say, here, look, there's evidence. The evidence is pointing towards something. No, I mean, with public health policy, there's a standard, and you throw out the stuff that's below the standard, the threshold, and you keep the stuff that's above, and you, you use that as the basis of whether you implement the policy or not. And this is well known. So, I mean, we're just saying what basically what the WHO would have said last year.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, and and then you have the list of uh, the studies that actually can show that. I mean, and this is just the thing. It's like most people aren't getting the the opposing information. There's there's other studies out there that shows that mask wearing is dangerous. That if you wear a mask for a long period of time then you have an opportunity to actually culture more uh, viral material in the mass more bacteria in the mass that can lead to uh, you know uh, re- respiratory infections and other other inflammation based diseases um and yeah, but just, you don't need that
2: you don't need that to say that uh you should not have mandatory masks
3: mm-hmm.
2: right because imposing mandatory masks is a it's, a, it's an action it's a positive action sure to do that you need to have some some reliable evidence that there's a positive benefit to to doing that so you, you actually don't as a critic of these policies you don't need to show that there are uh, studies showing a uh, significant negative effect although i am aware of one randomized controlled trial from a few years ago i think it was 2015 or 2016 that did uh, show a negative effect of wearing a, a tish, uh, fabric uh, face mask, mm-hmm. uh, more infections in other words. So, but yeah, but, but the, I think the, the important point here is that it's, it's actually not even relevant. You know, it doesn't matter because they're trying to impose something. So it's, the onus is on them. The onus is on the policymaker that wants to impose the uh, mandatory mask to show that there's a positive benefit and that that benefit outweighs the, uh, the
3: risk. Right. Least they violate Section One of our rights code, Uh which the the lacking of such scientific support
1: uh, is allowing for. So what we we got arrested for exactly uh, the opposite. What Joseph's saying is it being considered by the officials who are supposed to be upholding these mandates. In fact, they don't even know what they're upholding. So they convert it into a Trespass to Property Act charge uh, since they have no jurisdiction over the mask mandates. And the moment they're challenged with science, well, that kind of uh, deflates their balloon. So they have to turn it into something they can enforce, which is a Property to Trespass Act.
0: That ends the discussion about masking. And your Section 1 rights are violated. Mm-hmm. And what is Section 1 for, for those of us in the United States?
1: <laughs> well, it deals with freedom of speech, uh, life, liberty, the pursuit mm-hmm. of happiness, disability, uh, creed, race, color, religion.
3: It
2: covers a whole slew of stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, let me just jump in there. It's um, So we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Okay, Canada. It's like the Constitution in the United States, except that unlike the Constitution in the US, we have this special section, it's the very first one, right at the top of the document, that says the government can just override all of these rights that we're going to list
0: in the
2: document, right? So the <laughs> US doesn't have that. Canada has it. And you know some of the other, some Western European countries have it. Um, and, um, but yes, yeah, so the first section is, you have these rights unless uh, the government um, decides to throw them away but to do that they have to show that it's necessary they have to show uh that it's reasonable there's a test for that whether they can do that or not well what i think george is getting at is that um to violate freedom of all the freedoms that are listed in the rest of the charter the government should be showing uh its evidence all of its evidence It, it has to prove to the public that it's necessary um to override Uh, The fundamental
0: rights. Yeah, I mean, essentially, that's how they're circumventing everything here too. Is that over the years, slowly, state governments and even on the federal level, they've been talking about, well, what if there's a state of emergency? And you know, it's just gotten to the point where now the 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 uh, executive branches of the state and the federal government can just claim a state of emergency, and then there go all of our rights too. They're they're using the same old argument you know, to say, well, we know best it's a state of emergency and, and we're really not I mean, you know, they're not entitled to go in front of the people and say, no, here's why it's a state of emergency, here's what's going on. I mean I you know, here in California theoretically, after sixty days, uh the legislature is supposed to have the ability to tell them it's not a state of emergency anymore. Um, but the governor so far has has just been reimposing the state of emergency and there hasn't been any debate on the floor of any legislature as far as i know uh why we should keep this up so it's it's actually quite amazing that they've been able to to circumvent our constitution and bill of rights uh using this concept and and really having very little pushback um i mean i i'm just flabbergasted that's why i'm so interested in the whole cognitive dissonance concept and what's going on with people and why, why are they're not uh, even in the least bit concerned? I had a conversation with a friend of mine when the lockdowns happened six months ago, like they're just taking away our freedom of assembly. There wasn't a peep in, in the press. There wasn't a, a single conversation anywhere about like, maybe we should have a conversation about this before they do it. No, it was all just, you know, scaring the crap out of us about how dangerous COVID was none of which was ever scientifically verified and never came to pass as far as i know you know in terms of the of the bell curves of the all the infections that have happened they've all followed the same i think it's called far's law of epidemi epidemiology where this is how virus spread always occurs according to this curve none of the curves have been flattened anywhere and yet people are still convinced that we have to be in lockdown. It's, it, it's it. Well, R- Rockle's already, you know, rockles uh,
1: pointed out on a few occasions. Mm-hmm. Right now, Parliament's neutered, so are the courts. And we have a government operating under royal prerogative, which has been illegal since 1689. I checked this out myself. And right now, we have a lot of arbitrary decisions being made. The other thing I discovered is uh, further to what Joseph said is the reason why the police are not, when, when called to enforce the mask, they convene with the owner of the establishment and get them to agree that it's a trespass call. This is why video cameras are very important to show the reason for the, for the attention at that point. Um, when in fact... If I'm not mistaken, under the rules, there is no other uh, law that trumps the human rights code. Despite what it's, Joseph, you mentioned something about the charter. There's the charter of rights and then there's the human rights code. And my understanding is the human rights code is superior above all. Hmm. There's nothing you can you can do. And since there's this conflict as Joseph mentioned, they haven't shown the standard, they have not met the standard gold or otherwise in terms of proving to us that there is a scientific basis for these mask uh, mandates. And since they can't do that and that is I mean almost old knowledge now in my opinion that they cannot achieve that level of of, of evidence, they now are faced with having to alter the reason for calling the police to enforce what the police themselves know would, would land up being unenforceable. It would not prevail.
2: George, were you charged with the trespass or, or someone in that event? Like, was there actually a, a trespass notice given?
1: I love that question because <laughs> if you remember Rob Ford said it's going to be 800 bucks. If you're showing up, so you are uh, an activist. It's going to be 100 grand for the organizers and 10 grand, I think, for a business that opens. And, and I could be wrong about those numbers, by the way. So please don't quote me. But they're up there.
3: Mm-hmm. And we
1: said to the police when they arrested us at Hilton Toronto. Uh, so we're we're going to go outside, and you're going to give us a ticket. I have this on video. No, they don't want to give us ticket. We want the tickets. We need the ticket.
3: <laughs> you know, we need right.
2: to put the judges desk. That would be a ticket under the uh, mandatory mask bylaw or order, right? Yes. The trespass ticket would be a different ticket. Correct. They
1: didn't give us that. Both, in my opinion, would be incriminating. Our lawyers, our legal team
2: seem to agree. Because if you had, the, if you had the trespass ticket, then you could start seeing how to attack it and whether you know you would go through the human rights code or, or some other
3: uh well the, well, just, well, no no it, uh
1: the police don't it seems to me that the police don't want to be implicated in and, and, and handing out a ticket is a, is a record of that of that transaction because now the police are drawn into discrimination as well
0: interesting like actually the police i mean isn't this funny to see that you here you are actually trying to draw yourself and i want to finish up here with a conversation about the strategy and, and strategies that we're we're trying to combat this with. Um, but the cops are like they know it's gonna be so much paperwork. They know that you're you know you're ready to fight. I mean most of the time they hand out a ticket, right? You go to court 40, ticket. Forty eight minutes
1: forty-eight minutes. Five of our team in a hotel in Toronto, uh-huh, one forty five Richmond Street West with the police Three of them, and including a sergeant, who I felt wanted to be the poster boy of human rights violations, would not give us the ticket, regardless of the level of resistance we we offered up, including our question: Are you going to use force now? Right. <laughs> we don't want to use force. We don't. Okay, so we're not leaving. Yeah, we have a right to be here. We have broken no laws. We are not leaving. Falls in your court, your serve. And I got through one I got through the one of the cops who said, I'm not touching anybody, I'm here to keep the peace. Well, then you better call your sergeant because you have a manager over there right now that you guys are enabling to violate our rights. And that is abhorrent. You swore an oath to uphold the very constitution. You are now enabling a vindictive manager who we challenged appropriately under the law. Mm-hmm successfully violating so if that's your collaboration then and people don't resist that that is of grave danger to every single person in this country if one person is allowed to have that done to them every person is is experiencing a ripple effect and they better know it Because apparently they're not using force. They're not out to, I'm sorry, they're they're not out to deceive us anymore. They are using force. They are saying we're going to show up and your rights are going to be violated. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. Not complex. And therefore, we wanted to get the most out of the experience we could. If you're going to arrest us, make sure we get the ticket because Dougie's telling you to do it. And don't forget we're the group that told your boss, Tory, not to defund you. But now you want to breach our rights. As a matter of fact, when the police officers showed up, I'm sorry, when the sergeant showed up, the the first police officer who didn't want to touch us said, you know, these are the guys over here. They do the demonstration at Dundas Square every Saturday. That was his first line. No pun intended.
0: And you're just, you're not wearing a mask at the restaurant at the Hilton. Is that what's happening? And the manager calls the cops and now...
1: Well, we called. As a matter of fact, uh, one of our team called to verify that mask exemptions were in effect. Hmm. She was told that they are. It's on my reservation. It's written right on my reservation, Hmm. mask exempt, sent in. And when I got there, listen, that was only the Hilton. I was also at the Sheraton, Toronto, where also uh, my wife put on uh, my uh, uh, reservation but I was exempt. So when I got down there, they said, we're not going to fulfill your reservation. Please leave. So, I mean, I had to go to three hotels before we found one. (laughs) Right. So, you know, the whole scenario was replayed over the, at the Hilton where the same, where another manager, uh, who took our money, took our credit cards, et cetera, et cetera. The reservation was complete. We were sitting, having dinner, having a meeting, talking about the event the following day, and the same manager then came up, I guess he had a change of heart, and told us we all had to wear masks. Well, I was, I was confused. I said, what's the problem? We just had this conversation upon arrival, and things were okay. Your establishment advised us that mask exemptions are in effect. Now, now they're not in effect. So we're making this up as we go along. We're just going to change things on the fly. And the next thing you know, we've got three cops uh, in our faces. Hmm. And we help them uh, to lawful conversation for 48 minutes. So had we been actually doing anything wrong, we would have been removed long before 48 minutes. I assure you of that.
0: Did you get the ticket in the end? Are you going to no. be able to are you gonna go to court? You're not going go to be able to go to court after we are that?
1: Suing them. Yes, we are suing them. Absolutely. 100%. Okay.
0: okay. We're suing I mean, all of them. All these having bigger cool. rallies, and then they'll come. Say <laughs> that again. If you keep just just having bigger rallies, I think eventually you'll get your chance.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the traction's there, right? I mean, the people are out there exposing what we're trying to do. Now it's kind of taken on a life of its own, uh-huh. which is a wonderful thing to see. That we're getting through to some people. Uh, so yeah, and and now other groups,
2: I, you know. With the O C L A. Kind of the silver lining to to all of this in a sense is like I mean we uh, entered this uh, dystopian horror movie with the masks and the lockdown and social distancing and everything so quickly that it's like I think it shows that the state was already in of uh, something very close to or something very far from democracy closer to totalitarianism sure. already for a long time. Right. But uh there's not a lot of people that were aware of this. Now I, I think that you know, it's unavoidable and there are a lot of people who are thirsty um for meaning meaning in life and, and in this case to um to find a way to uh have some influence and um contribute to uh rolling this back and, and, and changing this. So I think it's I think there's it's a bit of a silver lining in a sense is that this is just so extreme mm-hmm. that Basically, everyone is now aware of, um, or at least confronted with. They might react differently, but they're confronted with um, this very undemocratic uh, state that we're in. So there's chance, there's chance for uh, much stronger resistance and um, uh, rebellion against injustice than there was before this happened.
0: Right. I think one of the interesting things that I know in my own area, we were probably three months into all this and one restaurant was like, screw it. We don't care. You know, we're going to open up. We're tired of losing money. We're going to lose our business. If we don't, you know, we're going to open up. We don't care about the mass. Anybody can come and uh, you know, the people in the community start freaking out. My God, this restaurant's open. And then one of the most fascinating things that happened was, They realized that there was no enforcement mechanism, that literally the only enforcement mechanism had been this peer pressure that had been imposed on everyone to do what they were told. And so our local government had to pass a specific ordinance for this specific place to say, we're going to fine them $10,000 and we're going to shut them down because they, and they had to become the enforcement mechanism. And it was almost like, it's just so strange that the you know, the community itself was doing the self-policing. Like it was, a, it was creating this totalitarian state without the state having to be totalitarian with just the state scaring them enough to, to get them all to do what they were told. Uh, I mean, it's just so fascinating. And then over time now, like George, you're telling me this story, you're trying to get arrested because you want to go to court. And this is, you know, this is a great angle for, for nonviolent resistance to this kind of thing. And they're even hesitant. They don't even want to deal with it. I, you know, not
1: even giving you. They're not even giving you an incident number.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, how fascinating. And, and it's uh, it's like I think. I, I mean, I agree with you, Joseph. More and more people have to start going. Like, what's really going on? I mean, it's more of a psychological operation than it even is. You know, a totalitarian regime. They don't have to put the boot on your neck. They just. You know, have to come up with a really scary virus, and and oh, you, know. you see, guilted these people. They're pitting people
1: against one another. Guilt is about doing; shame is about being. Right. So you're getting these people who are partnering with the government, and they're guilting you. Basically, what they're saying is, what you're doing is wrong. You know, you shouldn't. You should be wearing a mask. And this is the you know the we're seeing virtue signaling. We're seeing people who think that they are entitled. You know, I was at the grocery store and a lady forty feet away going, Where's your mask? You know, <laughs> I'm like you know, right, right. Chasing wearing your a mask. Well <laughs> you are. You know, and and, and and this odd behavior where people think it's okay to violate your rights because Doug Ford said, If you see these people without a mask, you make sure you tell them. And he said that something to that effect in one of his recent interviews, Mm -hmm. so that to me is pitting people against. them. It's the non-mask wearers versus the mask wearers. Listen, we're not, you know, people keep calling us anti-maskers. We're not anti-anything, we're just anti-stupid. And they don't like that. They don't like that we're challenging the stupidity of what they believe and failing any science coming forward again, you're gonna get attacked. It is the same patternistic thing. And since, you know, we've got this thing called the social construction of reality, And what we're living in right now is unreality. Human beings are creatures of habit. Mm -hmm. So the government has habitually told these people, uh, uh, you know, uh, fear-inducing ideas, constantly waving cases in our face. um, And some people are very susceptible to that. In fact, I would say most people are. We are the minority. The correct ones are the minority. The people who see the lack of science who understand that the state of emergency did not meet, for 10 provinces, the criteria of what is required to introduce a state or announce a state of emergency. So people are asking questions about legislation, rules, policy, laws, etc., that they've never had to ask before. If you bring in a woman from former Soviet Union or wherever communism is or was, yeah. It, yeah. For them it's the same thing as us talking about the weather. They know what it lives, what it's like to live under a communist society. Mm-hmm. And here mm-hmm. the Canadian people they just can't get there. It's outside of their normal perceptual right.
3: Uh,
0: uh, well capability. that's just, that's just what's so that's crazy. crazy. No, I Think it looks like this, right? This looks like the lockdowns and people don't, you know, they don't know that they're just, they're actually inviting, they're inviting the totalitarianism in and they're not standing up against it. It's just amazing.
1: <laughs> your uh, silence is your consent. I think that's what Yeah. Uh, that generally means. It's like, it's, you know, people are afraid to say anything. Well, Again, we go back to the doctor and the police officer, both who handed in their occupational uh, uh, positions to adhere to truth and reality. And humanness um, that doesn't you know people say well it's only two well hang on a second here you have these other people who don't disagree but they're afraid of losing reputation or economies or hurting their families or speaking out to to a point where it could be threatening to them there's a host of reasons why people don't want to say anything but I don't think this is the time for the silent majority
2: to remain silent, if anything. We've got a lot of momentum right now. They've got to wake up and speak out. Yeah, Something that's really encouraging, you see this in like some of the responses by politicians to people's letters against opposing the mandatory mask policies. Is they're, they're, Politicians will respond things like, you know, um, uh, everybody has to wear a mask or else people will start to question whether it's necessary. You know, and if, if there's only one or two or three or four people not wearing a mask, then that's enough to, uh, you know,
3: right. Cause right. More
2: sure. Sure. To not wear it either, not, not comply. Right. So, it's, I mean, it's pretty encouraging that they're, that, that, I mean, if, if politicians that are making the laws, that's actually going through their head and that's part of their decision. Um, I, I think that might be true. That might be the case. Right. So that's, I mean, that's an encouraging thing that there could be a domino effect. Um, Uh, that's possible so it doesn't take it doesn't take a very large uh, nucleus of resistors to make some significant change and the other thing that's kind of encouraging if you look at it a certain way is that they they have to use fines uh, significant fines Uh, and so in a sense uh, this is just anecdotal but it seemed to me that when they were introducing the lockdown measures and social distancing measures back in March that people would uh, obey up to the point of a fine And then they would kind of just ignore the other recommendations, at least a lot, a large portion of this is just me observing things and other people have said similar things. But um, it's, you know, and then gradually the government had to impose actual concrete funds. uh, And then that's when immediately uh, people's behavior would change. So I found that kind of interesting. I mean, it's 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 uh, also disheartening that it's so easy to control the population by just announcing that there will be a fine that even, you know, if you think about it, it would be almost impossible to enforce, but, yeah. um, But that's where we're at. That's where we're at right now is, uh, so at least it's not necessarily, I don't think it's not necessarily a fear of the virus that is causing people to obey these rules. I tend to think it's more the actual, we were trained. We've, you know, grown up in a society where you don't want to break the rules, basically. And once it becomes clear with the backing of a fine, what the rule is, then you, you know, 100% comply. Uh, that's the kind of society that,
1: that right? I've
0: that's had. An, sorry. Well, I'll just say I've had the same experience as as you know the months passed and I would deal with individuals, you know, one on one because it's like sort of like when you get into the. When you're in a massive group, almost everybody wants to wear their masks, whatever, because they're afraid about what other people are going to do. But when you get people one-on-one, it was interesting to me to see what their responses were, like how much were they going to sort of self-impose on themselves wearing the mask with just one other person standing there, you know? And eventually I came to the conclusion that it, was, it didn't have to do with the virus or the facts about the virus. It was, it was entirely their relationship with authority. If they didn't trust authority, then people were like, hey, you know, they were always happy if I didn't want, need them to wear a mask or want them to wear the mask and they could just kind of be
1: more casual. Let's, I want to get back to something Joseph said earlier about punishment. If you remember in the very beginning, Doug Ford said, Premier Doug Ford said, you know, I don't want to go punishing the businesses and turn them into criminals. You know, we trust that you're going to follow the mandate, the regulations, the pol, whatever. mm -hmm. Okay. And then when they started to realize that people weren't thrilled about that idea and were resisting, remember Yahoo Nation was born, just a bunch of yahoos, a couple of hundred yahoos are causing this problem. But, you know, things were okay over the weekend except for a bunch of yahoos. Then the punishments started because they started to realize people weren't afraid enough about the repercussions. And 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 that was a smaller segment at at one at one point. So when that segment started to grow, then you saw the intensity of the measures being increased.
3: Uh
2: huh. Yeah, that and was the, and government's and response the, with, the with the media uh, slander and defamation campaign. You know the, the smearing. You know, yeah. so it, it's interesting how this um, propaganda wave kind of has these different these different sections that play off one another. So it's like. The media will be starting to smear conspiracy theorists. Then the government introduces a hard concrete fine. And then that allows the media to be bolder and to, you know, to come down even harder and defame even more strongly. Right. Who would resist. So these things and the institutions are part of this fabric as well. The health and the other policy institutions. And they're, they're kind of like they're watching each other's move and then making the next move. And it kind of um, it all goes together and, and points in, in one direction. In
0: well, and now we're seeing the censorship on, on uh, these third-party platforms, the Twitters and the YouTubes and the Facebook, just going through the roof. I mean, that's what I've seen, you know, and maybe from my vantage point as a media producer, but it's it's gotten, as this has gone on longer, they've come down harder and harder and harder on on those of us who are trying to have conversations like this one, so... It's funny. It's almost like the government's not the one, (laughs) you know, it's, it's these social media companies. They just got called. I believe they got,
1: they got called to testify. The president of Twitter, the president of, uh, of, um, YouTube and Facebook, all three of them, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. that's got called to testify because it's out of control. I mean, this is not this, I don't call it censorship. I, to me, censorship is eliminating harmful content that can mislead people Provably mislead people and dangerously harm the belief systems uh, and decisions, and therefore the decisions people will make. That is valid censorship, or if it's it's a form of corruption that could da- damage the minds of children who are who could inadvertently touch uh, uh, contact this information. What we're actually seeing is not censorship. In fact, it is collaboration. Mm-hmm. This is they're playing a partnering role in suppressing
3: right.
1: provable scientific data and expert scrutiny, hence collaboration. They don't want that expert scrutiny. So you're seeing a lot of things on Facebook being tagged as false, which are in fact true, which is why I say it's not censorship. It's collaboration. They're working to do this together, yeah. to suppress and make sure we don't have access to the data that puts their credibility and questions their credibility in broad daylight.
2: Censorship is the state silencing certain pieces of information, okay. making it disappear or yeah. not allowing it to be expressed and put out there. And it's a, we're in a state where um, corporations are extremely powerful, more powerful than the government at the end of the day, some corporations. And yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's corporate censorship, when the corporation is a monopoly of a uh, form of expression like as this case with facebook and twitter and and, and so on and google um is state censorship it's the same thing
0: right especially when point. you when you take into account that these all these companies have massive government contracts and and um have benefited from a relationship a tight relationship with the government in terms of uh uh limiting competition and then getting, you know, again these government contracts that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars which also, you know, place them at a at a huge advantage over any com- competitors that aren't getting that kind of those kind of lucrative contracts or subsidies. I mean, I I just have started to call it the the government corporate complex cuz to me as George was saying, it's it's really collusion. And then the government can say, "Well, the corporations are are doing it, but you know, they're it's not the government, so they can censor whatever they want." Um, but it's like, yeah, but without the government, they would never have gotten this big or or been, you know, been able to monopolize in this way. Or
2: I don't yes, even know it, if we'd it, have it, a centralized it, it, internet. The creation of the internet and the infrastructure of the internet is largely public, from public uh, right public funds and. And they, uh, these corporations are making use of that, but then they're allowed to uh, right. defy the constitutional rights right. that the government is supposed to uphold. So it's, it's not right. Um, it's censorship. It's state censorship, and it should it totally should not be allowed, and it has to be uh, uh, rolled back big time.
0: Well, gentlemen, we're looking at, uh, we've crossed over the 90 minute mark. I think we probably should close it off. If you have, uh, some closing statements, um, I was getting, we, we touched a little bit on the, on the strategies and talked about, you know, basically trying to get arrested so that you can, you know, actually get something in court and trying to set these precedents in court that this stuff is, uh, is unconstitutional or, or violates these basic human rights. Um, but having more and more rallies, it's, uh, Exciting for me to hear that you're doing this every weekend, because I think being consistent and getting more and more and more people over time, um, it's just that's what's going to happen. And it's got to grow. It's got to grow. And we've got to be getting the word out. So, you know,
3: we're not
1: we're not we're not trying to get arrested. Right. (laughs) We went went the road on on civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. That's what we did when they arrested us. That presented the opportunity to say, hey, where's the ticket? So we're not actively out there seeking to be arrested, albeit the fact you've heard Doug Ford and Tory say, you know, there will be fines. None of us have received fines. Well, one person from Hugs Over Mask, which you know is Chris Sky, mm-hmm. uh, he's made a good name for himself. He's taken a few on the chin and he's, he's making himself a hero in some ways because he's, he's really stood up to these guys. I mean, they've been knocking on his door. They know when he shows up to the rally. So, <clears throat> I mean, he, he called them out, but they put the ticket in his wrong name. Now he has to be in court, I think, November 9th. Okay. To prove uh, that he didn't violate the Quarantine Act. Well, that that, that there's going to be a hodgepodge of science that, that there will be called upon, I'm certain, to, uh, to if the... The uh, arresting officers are to prevail. I highly doubt that's going to be the case. However, it's creating a lot of controversy, which we need out there right now because those th- these kind of situations get people to to take a look and see. Well, what is the truth here now? Right. These offers the impetus for people to look further into this because now people are getting arrested and some of them are laughing and then we are, you know a little chagrin realizing that upon the research. There is no basis to arrest anyone for exercising, defending the integrity of their human rights whatsoever, or any other group who does do that and have, well, have I, the courage to do it.
0: And that's just the fascinating thing. Like we've gotten to this place where you actually, you know, in a court of law is where they have to listen to your argument. So, I mean, we can't, nobody seems to be listening out in the world where we're encountering, like we've discussed, is cognitive dissonance. But at least if we can get them into a courtroom where on the record we can kind of go down the list, they then they have to pay attention to the science.
2: <laughs> so hopefully you can it on the
0: record, but they won't listen to your
1: argument. Yeah, sorry. What they
2: won't listen to your argument in court. You, you can. You can. You can. If you're lucky, you, If you're lucky, you can make the argument.
3: Yeah. Sometimes okay.
2: they don't let you do that. If if they if they don't the squash thing, the case, the only thing that's gonna make them listen to the argument is if there's enough public opinion right. behind you.
0: So, that's, so
2: you, if there's no public opinion, there's no public support, they just won't even listen to it. They might not even let you make the argument. Yeah. Uh if there's if there's a section of the society that is actually on your side, that's a that changes the game. So the court of public opinion is is most important
0: right interesting so you know a combination that's of that's legal action fruit. with with the uh with the rallies and the organization to get the whole, numbers.
2: the whole fabric of everything that's happening um and you know starting with individuals um saying how can i find some courage be confident and uh do the right thing in my own life and 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 it all starts there and if it can um, take root in the society, then the institutions have to respond to some degree, including mm-hmm. the courts. Absolutely. absolutely. This is this, this to me, and you know
1: what uh, um, Denny Rancourt and I were talking about the other day, and, and Joseph, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, l- legal recourse um, with that support falls on deaf ears. You can go through the motions, you may not prevail. This, is, this what is what creates the basis for these grassroots initiatives. Because once you've established uh, a, a vast um, group of people who are willing to be the court of public opinion, at that point, as we have done, as the line has done recently, I just installed the, uh, the uh, collective legal uh, action. So now, now is the time for us to introduce legal because we've got some traction and we have enough people that are interested in doing that. The courts can't ignore that. Yeah. As they could if you have no grassroots initiatives to support
2: your legal standing, even if you're right. And I just want to add that I totally agree with that, but I just want to add that court action is part of what, what creates, what can create the public opinion. You know, so it's not to say that you should wait until you have some mass of people that are supporting you <laughs> before you ever... Uh, right. I think everyone has to decide what's right for them. And and using the court system and, and uh, you know, um, going to court and learning the law and standing up for yourself and defending yourself is very important. It's a vital part of uh, this effort to push back for sure.
1: Definitely. And you've got to use the judiciary effectively now i i I totally agree with uh with joseph don't if you're uh, you know gandhi said if you're the minority of one person speak your truth the truth is the truth i totally agree Um, it's very comforting to have a large group of people who believe in what you're saying to them and who could probably finish some of your statements even though we're the people doing this work there are all of those people in that area that are showing up to our protests Generally, to some degree, all believe, all know, all see the same things. All of them. If you look at the people who are opposing us, by contrast, they don't all believe the same things. There are different pockets of people. Mm-hmm. anti masters, some are like, well, you know, this is, uh, this is the, the, the Russian thing or, or uh, something that's totally unrelated uh what is what they're seeing going on. To us properly understood, Rocco's statement of claim captures this handsomely well in his declarations where he shows the sections of law being violated and he shows what the ulterior motives are and the media corroborates that. Yeah. I don't think there's any ambivalence. Yeah. If anybody is still talking about a virus today, they're stuck in May. <laughs> right. <laughs> what what's happened now is there's sufficient outpouring a sufficient uh, amount of people scientists from all over the world thousands that are now saying no you guys are not telling your people the truth and everyone's acting like fancy you know fancy what the prince is wearing the prince has no clothes fancy what he's wearing yeah (laughs) and we're coming up there going look he's naked (laughs) You know, so they don't like that. They don't like this pushback. We're we're getting, uh, you know, slammed by Tory and slammed by Doug because we're giving them run for their money. Doug was just on the news whining that he doesn't want people showing up at his house for protesting. <laughs> well, what's the, what is the bigger faux pas, uh, faux pas here, Doug? That you're you're lying to your Canadian people. We voted you in, and you've betrayed our trust. That you won't tell us that you're in bed with these oligarchs, that you're following their roadmap, their mission, their their beliefs, their wants and desires that are expected of you, uh, you know. But he doesn't want you showing up at his house to remind him that he's doing that because the neighbors are bothered.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> unbelievable.
0: It's unbelievable. Well, Gentlemen, I think we better wrap it up. It's been it's been almost two hours now, and I but I definitely appreciate you coming on, and we'll keep in touch because I want to keep following this story. I'm so happy to see that up there in Canada we've got some organizations uh, that are really doing this level of work. I think here in the United States uh, we're at least a couple of months behind you guys, and I hope that um, we can start seeing more organizations starting here because it's absolutely necessary that people start to stand up against this. I mean, the longer this goes on, the more emboldened this totalitarianism and the people that are, are, um, you know, producing it, projecting it onto the rest of us are, are going to become. And, and so, uh, it's just more and more important that people stand up. So again, thank you so much for your work and and thanks for coming on to explain to my audience, uh, What's happening and helping to strategize in the big picture in terms of what people can do to stand up against us. So, um, do you want to give people your contact information so they can find out more about your organization and uh, maybe we'll attract a few more people to those protests up there in Toronto? Uh, Joseph?
2: Sure. Uh, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association uh, website is ocla.ca and uh, we're on Twitter, ON. C I V L I B on lib. and uh, we have a Facebook group as well, Ontario Civil Liberties Association. For now, for now, it's been uh, disappeared in the past. Over the yeah, summer, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll see what happens. All, All right, thanks a lot,
0: Doug. Yeah, you bet, Joseph. Thanks for coming on. Uh, and George, where can people find out more about the line?
1: Get us on later. uh a song later on Twitter at the line media. The line. Canada on Facebook and also our secondary main page at the Lion Canada on Twitter again and the check right. out our action page. Don't forget, uh, check out our page on Facebook for black and white listed restaurants and businesses who are violating your rights. So you can see uh, what we're doing about that. And if you haven't joined our membership for pro bono legal, uh, which we will be hitting hard next week, uh, make sure to email us at the line legal, sorry, at the line legal at the line Canada, pardon me, legal at the line Canada dot com. If you're interested in joining the fight to hold these businesses and institutions accountable, who have licensed businesses in these areas that are willfully practicing medicine without licenses and attempting to breach your rights. We have a new initiative to band uh, all the people together seeking justice. So make sure if you haven't got a membership, you get us at at legalatthelinecanada.com. And we look forward to doing a lot more work with the OCLA.
3: Yep. Sounds
0: great, guys. Uh, Again, really happy uh, about the work that you're doing. And thanks a lot for uh, letting me cover it. And uh, we'll keep in touch so that uh, I can uh, let my audience know uh, what's happening up there uh, into the future. I wish you all the luck. And hopefully here in the U.S., like I said, maybe we'll take a few cues and start to organize a little bit more ourselves. So you guys have a great week. And uh, thanks again. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, That was a great conversation between myself, George Roche, and Dr. Joseph Hickey. Um, We wanted to get those guys together. It was actually George's idea. The uh, OCLA has endorsed formally the work of the line. So they're up there in Ontario trying to make something happen, trying to raise awareness. And they had a great weekend. Last weekend, George and the line have been putting on these uh, rallies in Toronto every week, every weekend. Uh, I believe they've been going for eight weeks running, and last weekend they had apparently about 8,000 people show up. So starting to grow, starting to gain some steam. I think a lot of people getting tired of having to deal with all of this. Uh, Like I said in the introduction, the the CDC has come out with a 0.14 percent infection fatality rate for this thing, which is just above the flu, though they admit that most of those deaths are are over 70, people aged over 70. So all of us uh, of working age, when you do the numbers, uh, the COVID thing is actually much less deadly than the flu. And it just seems like the amount of damage that they're doing to the economy uh, doesn't uh, reflect the uh danger posed by this virus. We've got 30 to 40 million people in the United States that are on the verge of losing their houses. The only reason why all uh, 10% of the population hasn't been evicted so far is because the CDC actually had to intervene and say it was a national health crisis uh, and make it illegal to evict people. But we're looking at uh, a 10% homelessness crisis. We're seeing the food banks uh, overrun every week. We've seen 8 million people driven into poverty. The world numbers, uh, according to the World Health Organization and the United Nations, are out of control, 300 to 400 million. Four million uh, children are going to suffer from wasting disease that's near starvation next year as a result of the lockdown measures for a disease that has uh, so far killed uh 220,000 people here in the united states according to the official numbers though again um, m- many of those people uh, had already lived longer than the life expectancy in the united states so we have people that are getting this virus uh, of course very very elderly and passing away, and they're counting this as a, a COVID death. Something, by the way, that they've never done before in the history of any other pandemic. In fact, and maybe I'll try to remember, well, it's been posted up on uh, The Shift with Doug McCanty on Facebook, is the peer-reviewed scientific study that came out yesterday actually deemed it illegal the way they changed the counting methodology for COVID last March. They were supposed to go through official channels and... and uh, Be clear that uh, these are the reasons why they were changing the protocol for counting deaths for COVID compared to, say, deaths for H1N1 in 2009. They did not do that. The powers that be uh, just sleight of hand uh, changed the system, changed the way that they're counting this thing and making it appear like it's way worse than it actually is. I'm not discounting the fact that people are getting sick and that many people are, are dying from this disease. I'm just saying that people die from disease every day, and we don't shut down the economy, and we don't force uh, 10% of the population out of their homes into the streets. We don't force millions of people into poverty uh, as a result of uh, some of us catching a disease and then unfortunately passing away. Uh, People are getting sick of it. That's why I was excited to have George on. He brought Joseph And I was really happy to get to know about this uh, Ontario Civil Liberties Association. I've been feeling, much like Joseph said, that the typical civil liberties associations, the establishment associations, have not been standing up against this. We have the ACLU here in the United States. I've been waiting to see what they would do in terms of allowing these governments to have these emergency powers these governors uh, to call an emergency, uh, a state of emergency, and then essentially have dictatorial power over the state. Here in California, we're having a serious problem. We essentially no longer have a democracy. Uh, And there is a lawsuit against Gavin Newsom, and we'll see how that goes. Unfortunately, these things take time, and the longer, of course, that we're dealing with the lockdown, the more people are going to be impoverished. Uh, the higher the suicide rates, the higher the drug addiction rates, the higher the, the, uh, the domestic violence rates, all of which are going through the roof as a result of the anxiety felt by the economic pressures put on all of us, um, and as Joseph was saying you know it was nice to have the comparison and contrast actually between George who if you see my episode with him my interview with him where we really went deep into the psychology behind all of this with Joseph we were able to add to that conversation by really diving into the fact that there people aren't even letting us talk about it Uh, The Last American Vagabond just got booted off YouTube last week, uh, along with many, many other sites. Uh, Very clearly, there's a censorship campaign. I think the only reason why I'm still on YouTube is because I'm heavily shadow banned. They give me absolutely zero distribution, so I can say whatever I want. It's not going to get seen by anybody anyway. (laughs) And uh, so we have a serious problem. I did a a show uh, a few months ago now with Mark Jeftovic about the cancel culture. And good to see uh, the OCLA really standing up against this because it's especially pertinent if you're in academia. Uh, these people um, are not allowed to speak up. Sometimes I'm hearing stories of students, if you talk about your views, if you believe in in freedom of speech, if you want to stand up for the right of people to make choices about health care, personal health care decisions for themselves, uh, not just following the state diktats, uh, sometimes students will, will tell on them to the administration. The administration can have them fired. Um, so... You know, we're on the verge, if not fully over the edge of a Nazi Germany type situation here. And and so few people are even awake to what's going on. Just like in Nazi Germany, everybody's just doing their job, got their head in the sand, not paying attention. Hey, they're just censoring those crazy conspiracy theorists. Oh, I think those guys are white supremacists anyway. You know, they probably should be saying, oh, isn't that hate speech? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's hate speech to talk about science, to have scientists on, experts to discuss why these numbers don't make any sense, or economists on to talk about why the economy is tanking and so many people are being forced into poverty, uh, or to have a conversation about the great reset and what these billionaires are planning as things head forward into the Kobe pass uh, and uh, you know limiting our right to travel if we don't get the mandatory vaccine that's headed our way. Um and so as you can tell, I'm starting to get pretty frustrated here, <laughs> and I was actually happy to talk to George and Joseph and just have a little bit more of a laid-back conversation, but the, uh, what we're talking about is actually very serious, um, and so I really want to thank uh, those guys, give a big shout-out to those guys for standing up, and frankly, uh, I hope that we see more activism here in the United States. I've started. I've talked to people now in Europe and Canada uh, there are movements that are happening there, but here in the United States, ah, seems like there's a slow start. I've had a conversation with Clyde Cleveland. I'd like to have him back on the show. We're trying to talk solutions, um, but uh, hopefully we'll see some some political action here in the U.S. to stand up against all of this craziness, um, including just even the right to talk about it. I mean, amazing, amazing to live in a society to think that the United States would get to this place where opening your mouth uh, to express your opinion about something which I feel like should appear to be obvious to to just about anyone, um, you know, closing down the entire economy, forcing millions into poverty for a disease that, you know, there are potential cures for, that science has the ability to deal with, where the hospitals were never going to be overrun, uh, where we can clearly see there's not that I mean, in our actual lives, if it wasn't for what we're watching on the TV, if the corporate government narrative wasn't being pumped through the TV and on the radio 24-7, would you think that there was something, a severe pandemic going on in your life? You probably heard of a few people who got sick. It'd be a bad flu bug year. So I really want you to think about that. Like what's going on in the world where if you shut that TV off, how would you feel? How scared would you be about getting sick right now? Where is that fear coming from? Why do you feel so afraid? Um, And why is it that when people notice this and they speak out, the cancel culture moves in and they have to be afraid of literally losing their jobs. There have been doctors who have lost their jobs because they've stood up to speak, speak up about this. Um, So great show. Uh, Let me give you out the contact information again. uh, You can check out, uh, the Line Canada on Facebook, thelineinternational.com if you want to find them on the web and at The Line Media on Twitter. Um, the Ontario Civil Liberties Association will be at www.ocla.ca. They are at oncivlive on Twitter. That's OnCivLib on Twitter, and um, you can also get them on Facebook, although Joseph was Saying that they've been purged and they kind of come back. They're up right now, but it's Ontario Civil Liberties Association on Facebook. Uh, and of course, you can check me out, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on uh, Facebook and YouTube. I am at D McKenty on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. So thanks again, everybody, for listening to this show. Great conversation. We'll we'll keep it going. I think I'm going to be doing a, a shorter series on the psychology of lockdown with George. So you'll see him again coming down the pike. And we got a lot of great content. Just did an interview with Dr. Judy Mikovits. That'll be coming out next week. Uh, so thanks again, everybody, for listening. And remember to like, subscribe, and please share. Um, because you are the way this information gets spread around. So share this with your friends, uh, and I hope you really think about what you heard, and we'll see you again soon. All right, thanks. Take care.